And that's when I started to tune in to all this stuff that now comes through in coaching. Because I'd been dancing for 30 years and I hadn't ever tapped into what I now understand to be the components of world-class performance until I found myself in Italy with Mildred and, and in this place. So, so it was pivotal, really. And what happened in that half an hour to make you feel or know that this is where you need to be? If I provoke people away from the status quo, I know that they will think good thoughts and bring themselves back to a point of balance, but it's often not the one that they were on before. I feel like I'm the initiator of the disruption, but not necessarily the resolver of it. And that comes through in my coaching, I think. And we decided that this was so true to who we were and why we'd done the thing that we'd done. We'd gone there explicitly to immerse ourselves in the style of dancing that we wanted to do that was more creative, more ambitious, more energetic, more dynamic, more musical, a better spectacle. And we went, we're going to learn that choreography and no one's ever going to mark it. We were the first couple to dance it at the British Championships and we showed up. Everybody else stood at the sides of the floor and they went round the side doing this choreography in unison. And we started in the middle and started with a step that does not exist in the British version of the Viennese Walls. And nobody marked it. And we went to authenticity. This is us expressing our values. This is the story we want to tell people. I think people respected we had pursued something that, that mattered a lot to us. I am going to look back on this and think that it is a pivotal moment, an unlocked moment in my journey, because that was the moment of, I knew that that was right. And now I had to just figure out, well, what does that mean? If that's right, what does it mean? And I'm still figuring that bit out. My name's Dr. Gary Crotez, and I'm a coach, podcaster, and award-winning author of The Idea Mindset, a book about how to figure out what you want and how to get it. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. When I'm in conversation with my coaching clients, these are the breakthroughs that are so profound that they remember vividly where they were, who they were with, what they were thinking when their unlock moment happened. In this podcast, I'll be meeting and learning about people who have accomplished great things or brought about significant change in their life. And you'll be meeting them with me. We'll be finding out what inspired them, how they got through the hard times and what they learned along the way that they can share with you. Thank you for joining me on this podcast to hear all about another Unlock Moment. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of the Unlock Moment podcast. Now, if you've been listening for a while, then you'll remember a powerful conversation 
with a friend of mine and a brilliant coach, Beatrice Sornek. It's one of the most downloaded episodes of all time on the Unlock Moment. So when Beatrice approached me recently and said, why don't we turn things around and put you on the spot? I thought it might be fun and interesting. And that's what we're doing today. So this is my Unlock Moment. And slightly dauntingly, I have no idea quite where this conversation is going to go. But let's dive in anyway. Beatrice Sornek, it is my great pleasure to welcome you back to the Unlock Moment. Yeah, it's really great to see you again, Gary. And um, we, when we did that episode with me, I felt that we had such a, um, um, there was just a really profound connection. And I think that's testament to how you interview people. So let's see if that holds when we reverse roles. Um, so it's a pleasure to be speaking with you today. Thank you. And I have to say that, um, I mean, one, one, it's a, delight to be with you again too. There aren't many people that I trust to do that, do this, this way around. I was thinking I probably feel, I was like, you know, maybe I feel less confident being on this side of the microphone, but actually I have to say in the three minutes leading up to any of these conversations, I always feel inside quite nervous, even when I'm interviewing people, because you're never quite sure where the conversations are going to go. Often you don't know the people that well, we knew each other quite well. Um, but yeah, it's a very strange feeling for me being on the other side of the microphone but let's give it a go yeah well let's use that i'm i'm excited actually uh, a bit of nervousness just um opens things up a bit more so that's nice so i'm going to start by plagiarizing you <laughs> and ask you where do we need to start in your story to understand who you are today it's a very big question and um I ask people that question all the time. For me, I think one of the things that when you said, should we do this the other way around? I quite like the idea um, that when I talk and people who've listened to episodes before will have heard me talk about kind of my story starts when I left medicine. That, that's what I think about, you know, and I, I say I was 28 years old and I got the end of medical school and this is what happened next. Um, and then there's a whole life before that that I didn't talk about very much. So I think maybe, maybe I start a little bit more from, from the beginning. Um, and I, maybe that's, there's something interesting in there for us to explore. So, so I grew up here in, here in the UK. Um, I've got two older brothers, uh, and, um, I, I was born in Southampton, actually. Um, and I was growing up, um, I became a dancer very early. Dance is a big part of my identity because I went um, to ballroom dancing classes when I was four years old. So I have um, these photographs of and memories of myself as a, as a young child in, in dance classes. And then uh, as I was growing up, you know, I was at school doing schoolwork. And then um, uh, every week we'd be going on the weekend and sometimes during the week to dancing lessons with you know, a, a dance partner I'd have at the time and, and going to, to teachers both around where I lived and also traveling around the country. So um, I, I had quite a, an unusual childhood in, in that way because um, I didn't have a whole lot of free time to organize myself because what we did was, was quite intense. I had my first uh, dancing partner at the age of nine years old and um, we were doing little dancing competitions. We we were quite something in the under ten circuit in the UK, um, and um, a house was full of these little um, trophies that you'd win. Um, but we'd be dancing in school halls and things like that. Um, and 
at school, I was good at school. Um, I was, I was um, particularly good at um, maths, actually, was probably my top subject. Um, I was quite good at sciences, n never passionate about sciences, which is an interesting reflection for later on when we come into to medicine, but I was good at it. Um, I was quite good at languages. Um, I was quite good at English language, different things. So I, I was quite broad. And one of the things that was always quite um, striking for me, particularly when I compare with my brothers, my brothers were both quite clear from an early age as to the kind of thing they were going to do. My oldest brother um, was always very, um, he was always into computers and technology, um, and he would build things on the kitchen table with wires and LEDs and diodes and all that kind of stuff. Um, and he taught himself to uh, program a computer, you know, like a BBC microcomputer back in the day. Um, and my other brother was very much into um, animals, and uh, he grew butterflies in a, in a little uh, butterfly box, and he looked after hedgehogs that were that were, were ill. Um, and then he went and did his work experience at a vet's practice and many, many years on to become a vet. Um, for me, when I was going through I never had that sense of vocation. I never had that sense of this is what I, I, I'm so passionate about and I know what I'm going to do for the rest of my, my life. Um, so yeah, that, that was kind of my memories of childhood, really. But it sounds really interesting that it's a family with such diverse interests and you went into dancing. How, why dancing? Because that ended up being a really big passion and a big part of uh, uh, of your life, even in, in adulthood, not just in, in childhood. Yeah, it, my, my parents had both um, done a bit of dancing um, when they were younger. My mum particularly had gone to dance classes. Ballroom dancing used to be a thing, kind of a generation above, that, that was taught in school and people would want to go and learn to ballroom dance, less so, you know, when I was growing up, you know, I was born in the sort of mid to late 1970s. So you know, it, it was it was bigger probably than it is now. Uh, but my parents took us to dance classes, not to, you know, not to, for us to build a career in it, and not even for competitive ballroom dancing. They they thought it'd be a good thing for us to learn how to do because it's good social skills and and those kinds of things. And it just, you know, I I was dancing for five years before I ever had a dance partner, and then we kind of found dance competitions, and it sort of all spiraled from there. But my my parents had never been in that world at all, you know, when they were dancing, when they were younger. You know, I'm, I'm reflecting because as um, someone who grew up in Romania, some children had, you know, access to hobbies or sports, but I, I never did. So I'm, I'm really fascinated what keeps someone going into something like this. Is it passion for it or is it the trophies or is it the partner? It's a very interesting question. I think it's very different for different people. Um, for me, I was never, I was never really passionate about winning to the nth degree. There are lots of people who are really highly competitive and would compromise things like schoolwork for for their dancing. Um, I I think I think I enjoyed the the learning. Um, and I enjoyed the social side, um, and I enjoyed being successful. I was quite successful, but not super successful doing it when 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 growing up. But it was quite nice that you kind of had 
your two communities. You go to school and you had your friends at school, and then you would go to the dance competition and you'd have your friends and 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 our friends were from around the UK and sometimes you know as I got older from around the world as well. Um, and I guess that's that's what that's what motivated me more. Um, but because I started so young, by the time I got to the age where you know, particularly as a boy growing up in in this country, um, you know, you, you get quite a lot of stick at school as a young teenager, probably if, as, as if you're a born dancer. Um, but I'd already been doing it for many years, and therefore I kind of stuck at it because I felt like I was at quite a good level, and we were going to the British Championship or whatever. So, so that kind of kept me going. I think maybe if I'd started at 12 or 13, then I might not have kept it going at that kind of level. And actually I did, you know, I did give it up. Um, eventually when, when I was in my early twenties and I was at university, um, I, I stopped, we ran out of time, um, really to fit it in amongst medical training and other things I was going on to do. And I thought that, that that was the end of what I was going to do with that. It was a chapter of my life that had closed. Um, and I came back to it years later. Actually, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that later in, later in the story, probably. But it wasn't ever something that, that I thought, this is something I want to make a career out of and, and be in that world forever. Yeah, that was, uh, I, was, I was actually going to ask you about that. How does dancing connect to you today? Because I actually even remember, um, I'm, I'm sure you don't mind me telling your listeners that we... Uh, were in in the same supervision group, and I remember just uh, one time how you were drawing this parallel between coaching and dancing, and that turned into an article which you published in Forbes. Um, yeah, how how did those years? I imagine there's the discipline, there's the body movement, and all these skills perhaps not having free time and all those things, how did they influence your life later? And that's what's really interesting about this conversation. I don't know the answers to these questions. Um, I, think of, I think of my dancing career, if you call it a career, in distinct phases. So the first phase, which was from when I was very young up to when I went to university, um, was... was um, quite, I don't know, what you traditionally think of as ballroom dancing. So if you've seen the film Strictly Ballroom, it's a little bit like that. You know, I did ballroom dancing, I did Latin American dancing. Um, I probably had some kind of flouncy shirt that I was wearing in Latin America. And I was never built to look like a great Latin American dancer. Um, I was always more the ballroom style. So the tail suit and the elegant dress, that was much more my, my, my style. Um, and you know, uh, it, it was, it was fun and it was kind of helped develop me and grow me, I think. Um, but it, it wasn't, there wasn't a depth to it because I, I wasn't, I wasn't sophisticated enough to, to figure out the depth to it. I, I then went to university and, and, and danced for a few years on, on the circuit at, at university, um, and did well there, um, and there, the, it's much, it, there's a lot about the social side and, and, and it's just a fantastic atmosphere. Uh, it's one of the biggest university sort of pseudo sports activities there is in terms of participation. So I remember I was president of the um, Born Dancing Society at Bristol University where I did my undergrad. And they had something like two and a half thousand members in the university. So it was 
it was more than 10% of all the students at the University of members of the ballroom dancing class. Um, and I was, I was um, on the team um, and I, I danced with a fantastic um, girl in my first year who was a brilliant ballroom dancer. Um, and we won the national university championships at dancing together. And, and I went on over, over years and, and, and danced with different partners in Bristol and then later in Cambridge. Um, but my motivation there was that I just loved the dancing. And, and at the end of doing it at the university, when I started to get into my clinical medical training and traveling to different hospitals and so on and so forth, it just became impossible to meet up with somebody regularly enough to train and, and, and you're part of a team and, and you've got to be able to contribute to do it. Um, and that, that's when I stopped, really. When I came back to it later, um, again, that was still in two phases. So the first, I met my wife, Mildred, um, to dance together. And then we later got together and eventually got married. And the first half of our time dancing together, which in total was over about 10 years, the first half was a sort of more advanced version of what I'd done before. So we were amateur competitors based in the UK. We took lessons in the UK. We did competitions in the UK in those same school halls and gymnasiums um, that I was competing in and, and, and training in when I was younger. We were taking lessons with the same people that I'd taken lessons with 20 years ago. Um, and Mildred always thinks it's funny that all these people remember me and remember the three of us, my, my older brothers and me, um, as young boys dancing. Um, and the there was a real massive transition point for us where halfway through that time, so this stage I was early 30s, we just got to a point and we were like, we've done everything we want to do with this. Um, we know that there are couples that we compete against who come into competitions that we go to, and some of the biggest competitions in the world were in, were in the UK at the time. They come in from around the world. They came in from Eastern Europe, from Italy, from Russia, from the US, from China. And they, all, they had something that we didn't have. They had a style of dancing, an athleticism, a musicality, a, a level of kind of attack in their dancing that wasn't being taught in the UK. And we knew some people who were part of these academies in, in other countries. Um, and we thought, well, we can't give up our jobs and just move to Italy or Russia or America to, to train in these places because we were funding all of our dancing ourselves from, from our work. Um, and so we, we, we got to this point, and it's a very memorable moment where, where we went, we're either just going to say that we've done what we want to do, we're going to retire and get on with the rest of our lives, or we're going to find a way to compromise on everything we possibly can to see if we can tap into finding out what these other people are doing because we were just fascinated by there's something going on we don't understand it but we we see the outputs of it and it's amazing a little bit like if you, if you think of i don't know you know you go to a local ballet company performance and then you see somebody coming in from the bolshoi ballet and you'd be like, they've landed from another planet. They, they are doing the same steps in a different way, and you've never seen anybody dance that way before. That's what it was like. Um, and so we both moved jobs, and I, I literally left a job to pursue ballroom dancing um, in, 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 in a bigger way than we were doing before. And Mildred called Davide, who was the principal of this school in Italy where all the world champions went, and said, how do we come? 
and meet you and find out what you're doing. And he said, get on a plane and I'll see you on Monday morning at nine o'clock. Um, and we did that. We took two days of holiday and we got on a plane to Bologna and drove through rural Italy to this little village called Molinella, just out north of Bologna, to this industrial estate. And there was this little sort of industrial unit um, and unprepossessing on the outside. And you walk through the door and, and we went, oh, this couple's here and this couple's here and this couple's here and this couple's here. And a bunch of other couples that we didn't know were part of these kind of academies were all in the room. And I remember being there for about half an hour and going, I already know that we need to be finding a way to get here and surround ourselves with these people. And it was a revelation. And from that point onwards, our dancing career was completely different. We did all of our training outside the UK. We did all of our competing outside the UK. And when you compete outside the UK, the venues are bigger, the competitions are better organized, the competitors are far higher standard. So we did worse in our competitions, but we wanted to be on the floor with the best in the world. We trained physically, emotionally, mentally, differently from ever before, trained much, much harder. And that's when I started to tune into all this stuff that now comes through in coaching, because I hadn't I'd been dancing for 30 years and I hadn't ever tapped into what I now understand to be the components of world-class performance until I found myself in Italy with Mildred and, and in, in this, this place. So, so it was pivotal, really. And what happened in that half an hour to make you feel or know that this is where you need to be? Was it something external or internal? It was something very specific. So we, we, we'd arrived on Sunday night um, and it, this, this was a, a dance space with two or three studio spaces and these little rooms attached to the studios. Um, and, you know, we'd been allocated one of the rooms, very basic room to, to, to stay in, uh, all part of that little industrial unit. And so Sunday night, most of the dancers weren't there yet because they were off competing somewhere. Um, but a small group of dancers were just, you know, late at night in the studio and, and we went and introduced ourselves. Um, and they said, oh, so tell us about your dancing, your competing. And we said, well, you know, over the last year or so, we started to want to tap into what everybody's doing outside the UK. So we, you know, we went to Prague and did the competition in Prague and we went to Guernsey and did the competition in Guernsey. And we went somewhere else, did the competition in Belgium, I think it was. And they said, we didn't see you at the training camp. And we said, what training camp? And they went, the training camp that happened in the four days before the competition where all of the couples got together and all of the professional coaches got together and we did stamina and competition training, everything else. They said, why would you ever show up to the competition without attending the training camp? And that was the moment when we, we realized that what we'd been doing, which, which was trying to show up on our own and, and do our best, but we had no knowledge and we had nobody helping us to sort of tap into how it all worked. We just didn't have any of that. And, and so we didn't know what all the answers were, but we immediately knew that there were things that we were not seeing that we needed to see in terms of how to train. Um, and then the next day, um, we met with Davide for the first time and he said, um, at this time, you've got your lessons. At this time, you've got your practice in front of 
us and we will give you feedback on your practice at this time you're um, in academic lectures on the technique of dance on this at this time you're doing your fitness and stamina training at this time you're in the gym and we went oh because our dancing and this was 30 years of experience that brought us our dancing was go on a saturday and book a lesson with the the coach and then go on a monday tuesday and thursday into the studio and practice in our own time that's all we did um and we would do for stamina training back in england we would do five or six turns of our dances in a row so you do your waltz and you do your tango you do your foxtrot five or six because in a competition you've got to do five in a row so that's our stamina training and in italy they said oh now you're coming to our stamina training and we had to do 35 in a row and um i couldn't sleep all night the first night that we did the stamina training because i was in so much pain um and the coaches one was italian one was russian um davide and his wife olga and olga said to me you are not straight you do not stand straight but do not worry i will iron you she said <laughs> and i talked to one of the other professional dancers and he said yeah she ironed me as well <laughs> and it was just it was just you know a different world it's just a different world so going from really committed and dedicated to training at uh, an elite level or really high level. And I remember specifically the first lesson we had with Davide in the studio. We danced our routine around the floor and he said to me, you dance like my grandfather. And I went, okay. <laughs> and he said, I can tell that one, you, there was a gap. There was a time when you were not dancing and you've come back to it quite recently. And he said, also, I can tell that you've only taken lessons with the coaches in the UK who are, you're not using them in the right way. And he said, um, everybody needs, and this is something that I've reflected back in coaching more recently. He said, everybody needs a teacher and a coach and a professor. So the teacher is the person who is brilliant at teaching you how to do all of the basic capabilities for the thing. In this case, this was dancing. So who's the person who's going to teach you the alignments of all the steps, the footwork of all the steps, exactly where to put your arms and, 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 and hold and body weight and all those kinds of things? That's your teacher. Your coach is the person who works with you to guide and shape your career, you know, your mindset preparation, which competition should you be doing, what should you be your ambition, your targets, your goals. And the professors are people that you meet from time to time who have a brilliant eye and they will see things that nobody else sees, but they're not necessarily the best person to teach you the basics of, of how to dance. And I think now the same is true in looking at leadership, you know, you've got people who will teach you the basic capabilities of management and leadership. You've got people who will coach you, but they're not there to teach you. And then you've got professors, you know, like world leading coaches, for example, where, you know, you wouldn't go and ask them, how should I give feedback? How would I give feedback to a member of my team? There's other people that will do that better. But if you're having a challenging situation, they, maybe they've got an eye that they can spot something that nobody else has seen. And he said, you're taking the professors and you're asking them to teach you the basics of dance and you're using them in the wrong way. 
So it started to, it made me feel like an idiot, actually, in quite a positive way. Um, it made me think, I've got all these assumptions from all these years of how I think I should be successful. And I'm not super successful at it. You know, we, as I say, we were good, but we weren't, we weren't top world level. Um, and so we, we, we both, I remember the conversation Mildred and I had, and we said, we will go and what they say we need to do, we'll do. Because the, the, we've decided that either we retire or we come and try this thing. So we're not going to come and then not do the thing they tell us to do. So we did kind of embrace and throw ourselves 100% into it. Um, and that was actually quite a cathartic thing to do. I think if we'd gone earlier and still had these opinions that maybe we're also right and sort of end up doing half of it, it wouldn't have been as effective as it was. I might be skipping forward um, a bit here, but there's something you said, this um, teacher, coach, and professor. Sounds like those three elements really made an impact on you. And you were just talking about how it applies to leadership as well. So how do you apply this in your coaching? Do you apply it in your coaching? Because I know you work with leaders and I do. Um, so, so I think there's two elements to it. The first element is that as a person helping or supporting or guiding others, it's quite important for you to understand which of those three roles you want to play. So do you want to be a teacher, an educator, in which case you'd be a person who was building and creating and delivering courses of training or creating content on this is how to do things? Do you want to be a coach so you're elevated a bit and you're more guiding the, the higher level flow of somebody's life or career and helping them get their mindset straight? Or do you want to be more like a professor where you are you know, maybe presenting to a large group of people and trying to leave one sort of game-changing thought that sparks new new ideas in their thinking or or maybe to i don't know to do one coaching session with somebody where in that session you just see something that nobody else has seen and you're not trying to solve it for them but but you're trying to help them to understand something new um and for me as a coach i i find myself more attracted to coach and professor mode so so with my with the coaches that i coaches that i work with um i tend to work quite infrequently with my coaches compared with many others there's a lot of coaches that work on a like, more like a weekly basis and they do courses and group sessions and, and so on and so forth I, I do less of that um and i do quite a lot of work where where i do really like one touch coaching which is more that kind of I'll help you in having the session. It helps you to get unstuck with an idea or a thought, um, but it's not just designed to solve all your problems. But, you know, because you were speaking of coaching, and I think as coaches, we often think about different tools and frameworks that we use and, you know, models and things like that. And I always point out to coaches something that they don't realize, which is that what they bring 
to the space is really themselves and who they are as a person. And just reflecting on everything you've shared about your journey with dancing, I'm really seeing a person who shows a lot of commitment, a lot of resilience, a lot of loyalty and determination. Did these things show up in your coaching? Or how do they show up in your coaching? Who you are as a person? Because I'm sure that you weren't, that dancing didn't shape you to be determined and committed and all of those things, right? You already were as a person. I think so. I, I've become a much better coach for becoming trained as a coach. But I think that if someone were to listen to my coaching, it would sound in many ways quite different from, if you, if you like, um, if there is such a thing as standard coaching, but if you think of the kind of the coaching models that are, that, that are really effective, but taught you know, at volume in, in, in coaching training. Um, I am a great believer in accountability and ownership. And I'm a great believer that um, you can trust, you have to be able to trust the person in front of you to be able to do something sensible with the thoughts going on in their head. So I, I'm explicitly... Uh, detached from the idea that the coachee should come away from the session with three action points of things to do in the next week and know how they're going to measure those things. Like I, I, I am, I am uh, supportive of that being in the, in the standard models of coaching. And it's important that it is. Um, but the way I work tends to be more, it's about balance. Come back to dancing. I feel as though I was talking with, um, uh, Whitney Johnson in the conversation she had on the other moment, and we were talking about balance in dance. And I said, what I, one of the things I learned in Italy in, in dance was about if you are perfectly on balance, uh, by definition, you're not moving. Um, so you are, you are on your foot. And to move, you need to move yourself slightly out of balance. And when you move slightly out of balance, effectively, you start to fall in that direction that commences the movement. And then you stick your foot out in front of you or to the side and you catch that falling weight and you move through and arrive in your new balance. And that's a really powerful idea that later I kind of thought about in, in, in coaching and leadership, which is um, if you're completely in balance, you're not moving. So in part, I feel like my role as a coach is to help the person to come out of balance and be okay with that. Um, and so I do feel I'm quite a, as a person, I mean, anyone who's worked with me, not in a coaching capacity, but more in like a, as a strategy or advisory capacity, who knows I'm quite provocative. I'm quite the provocateur in the, in the conversation. Um, and I'm comfortable with if, if I provoke people away from the status quo, I know that they will think good thoughts and bring them back to a, bring themselves back to a point of balance, but it's often not the one that they were on before, you know? So, so 
I, I feel like I'm the initiator of the disruption, but not necessarily the resolver of it. Um, and, and that comes through in my coaching, I think. And it's really interesting because we are never taught to be comfortable with imbalance, right? We're taught that when we're not in balance, it's uncomfortable and we need to come back into balance. So then people constantly strive towards that. And I think it really takes a lot of courage to provoke people to uh, not be in balance. And it comes back to to the way you teach people to dance, actually. And, and I'm sure this is also true in, in other sports um like athletics and high jump and skiing um the way i was taught for 30 years was a model that was likened to a teacup on a saucer and they said to move across the floor to move the teacup and saucer you have to move the saucer and if you move the saucer the teacup will move and that relates to you have to get your feet perfect your feet have to move, you have to get the right alignments, the right footwork, uh, use the muscles of your feet. And then once you've got that really good, then worry about everything on top, which is your posture and your head and your arms and the dynamics and sway and all these kinds of things. And teaching that way created hugely tentative dancers because they were worried about their feet and their feet being the thing that made everything happen. And the judges were marking them on what the judges could see, which was their posture and their head and their arms and the shapes they made. And we, we didn't understand why, why we were seeing this different thing when we saw all of these international couples coming into these competitions and they seemed so confident and dynamic and they moved so fast across the floor. And we went, well, they must have amazing feet. And then when we went to those other countries and saw the way they were trained from a young age, the teachers said, throw your weight across the floor as far and as fast as you can. And it will look awful, and that's fine, because it, over time it's going to look better as you gain control of it. But your objective is to literally take as large steps as possible and move as fast as you can. And you saw these little kids who were not refined yet, but were so dynamic and so pacey and, 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 and like making big movements. And they loved it because it was really fun. And the judges loved it because they, they would mark and, and celebrate the energy and the dynamism. And so they get great results. And when they got great results, they wanted to do it again. And the couples trained in the English style with the cup and saucer were tentative and then getting bad results. So building their kind of inner imposter syndrome. Um, and for me, after 30 years of training that way, it was a massive mindset shift to start to say, okay, let all of that go and then be really released in, in the way you're comfortable in getting out of balance. And, you know, you, you slip over and fall flat on your face in front of the seven times world champion was never, never, um, never a fun experience. But actually, they said, right, that's a marker of you starting to do the right things, that at least you're trying to go for it now in a different way. And I was at a leadership conference this week, um, and we were having a conversation about, um, you know, how to I was on a panel session and we were talking about how to deal with difficult situations at work when, when things are uncertain and, you know, there's, there's difficult things going on. And people were 
talking in a very British way about being a bit uncomfortable about raising it with their boss. And in my head, I've got exactly that dynamic about the teacup and saucer or people flinging their weight across the floor. And I said, look, you've got to, you know, if you believe in it and you think this is important, then you've got to say it. And any leader worth their salt will hear it and will make a, allowance for that. You know, um, I said, in, when I've led teams, small or large, there was never a time when somebody came to me and said, I've got something going on that's really challenging. I need some help or I need some time. And I, and I went, no, you can't have that. But, but people are in that mindset of nervousness that, that they, they're not able to, to speak up. They're not able to speak their mind. And I said, look, if, you, if you've got a leader who's not open to that, then in 2023, you'll find a leader somewhere else who is. And that's why organizations are changing, because they're realizing that, that people expect more of their leaders now. And it is the same dynamism. You've just got to be open to, you've got to trust your teams, for example, that if they're working remotely, that they're going to be able to do a good job and they're going to be able to stick their hand up if they need help. And you, you've got to play a role in supporting them. Um, it's, it's that same comfort with something that's different from what you've done for 30 years that I had as a dancer. I just love how you apply this lesson to leadership and to managing stress at work. And um, in your advice, I'm hearing, you know, take a big leap, <laughs> even if it's not perfect and you will gain control over it over time rather than small and hesitant steps. The beauty and challenge of the dance world, particularly outside of the UK, particularly with the Russian coach, is that there's no diplomacy. Um, it's very, 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 very direct. Um, and, you know, way more direct than you could ever apply in, in, you know, a corporate environment. But you could also see the impact of that. You know, this, this little school, not that little, but this, this school in a little village north of Bologna had a digital screen in its entrance hall with a list of all of the world championships that have been won in that school in different disciplines of dancing and different age groups. And when we were there 10 years ago, um, they had 135 world championships out of that school. So not only were they doing something very exciting, both in terms of physical and creative development, but also the mindset development, it was proven in the results that, that they're, they're, um, the students that came out of that school and they had trained there all the way through from being, you know, teenagers through to being multiple times world champions had come through this very structured program that had created, um, very unique, um, distinctive dances. They weren't all following some kind of cookie cutter model. Um, and I remember Davide, you know, one day, you know, we, we were sitting in, in, in the lecture room and there were probably about, um, 50 dancers in, in the room from all over the world. So the couples had flown in every month from Vladivostok in Russia, uh, Vancouver in Canada. Um, they'd all, they all came and, and congregated here to come together. Um, and they had simultaneous translation um, for people that didn't speak Italian. So the lectures would be in Italian and then we'd have a little headset with it translated into English for some of the dancers on the end of the rows who were doing the translation. Um, and Davide said, 
only one couple can be the world champion and it'll be one of you in this room, I'm sure, but some of you won't become world champion. Um, and if you do become world champion, you won't become world champion by copying this other couple over here who is the current world champion because you're not the same size as them. You're not the same height as them. You don't have the same talents and strengths as them. You'll become world champion by dancing the way that is right for you, that's right for your physical attributes, that's right for your style, that's right for your natural talents. And we were talking to Paolo, who was the seven times world champion. And, and we said, what does that mean for you? So he taught us. And he said, yeah, um, Davide is very strong on, um, you win the world championship by doing the thing that you're absolutely best at and not doing anything else. So don't show a variety of choreography if showing a variety of choreography is showing things you're not very good at. He said, I, when I first started dancing tango with Davide, he said, this step is the one you're best at. And my choreography in the competition was to repeat that step over and over and over and over and over again. Because he said, why, why show the judges something that you're not best at? Years later, as a coach, I'm now working with people on their Gallup Clifton Strengths assessments, big part of what I do. And the whole philosophy behind that is, well, what are you naturally talented at? And what if you invest more in doing that thing and becoming brilliant at it? Instead of going, well, I'm quite good at that. Let's look at the other things I'm not so good at and become a bit of a jack of all trades and, and quite good at everything. It really played into the way we, 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 we saw the world in, in dancing. Yeah. And I think this speaks not just to strengths, but there's also something about authenticity as well, right? Um, each person is different and being who you are rather than copying someone else. And I know from, from having our initial pre-podcast conversation, you, you, were, you talked quite a bit about authenticity and why that's important to you. So when, we, um, when we've been in Italy for some time, and this school that we trained at had a, people in, in, in the UK didn't like it, didn't rate it, because it was so different from them. And it was really challenging the orthodoxy of the history of ballroom dancing, which was, always came out of the UK. Um, the choreography of, of ballroom dancing was mainly set in stone in the 1930s. So the history of, of, of ballroom dancing is, is, is out of the UK. Um, and is, you know, best part of 100 years old. And up until the mid-1990s, there hadn't been a single world champion who wasn't British. So it was very much, it was a, it was a kind of British-led sport. Um, and then the Italians had the temerity to add some new choreography to the Viennese Waltz, which is one of the most historic dances, and it's one with hardly any steps. So in most dances, there are 20, 30, 40, 50 different pieces of choreography you can put together to make your routine. In the Viennese Wars, there were only about five steps that you do, and everybody does the same thing, so it looks more like everybody's in coordination. And then in our school in Italy, one of the top, top couples went, well, why should there only be five steps in the Viennese Wars? We're going to create the other 30, drawing on influences from all of the other dances, but making it flow in the, in the style of the Viennese Wars with the Viennese Wars music. And it got picked up by everybody outside the UK. So it went, suddenly when you went to an international competition, instead of doing these five steps, everybody in unison, 
people started doing all these different and extraordinary new pieces of choreography. And it was the most amazing thing because it was such a spectacle. Suddenly, it's a very fast dance and you've got couples going in different directions, doing different moves, doing different shapes, and very musical. And it was like, um, just like this creative um, sort of pool because it was so new, you know, Every every time you saw another couple starting to do it, they were inventing something new because there was no how it had been done before. Um, and we knew that if we showed up back in the UK and even going into the practice studio and showing that we'd learned to do this choreography, all of those coaches and teachers that I'd known for the best part of 40 years were going to know where we were going in training and were going to look really down on us. And we decided that this was so true to who we were and why we'd done the thing that we'd done. We'd gone there explicitly to immerse ourselves in the style of dancing that we wanted to do that was more creative, more ambitious, more, more energetic, more dynamic, more musical, um, a better spectacle. And we went, we're going to learn that choreography and no one's ever going to mark it. And we were the first, and I don't know now, but we were definitely, we were the first couple um, to dance it at the British Championships. And we showed up and we, uh, everybody else stood at the sides of the floor and they went round the side doing this choreography in unison. And we started in the middle and started with a step that does not exist in the British version of the Viennese Wars. Um, and nobody marked it. And we went to authenticity this is us expressing our values. And this is the story we, we want to tell people. Um, and I, I think that whilst we didn't win the British Championships, but, but um, I think people respected that um, we had pursued something that, that mattered a lot to us. It's so interesting how you're able to make connections between ballroom dancing <laughs> and leadership and coaching. And I feel like we, we sort of started with your early childhood and we got into dancing and we connected it to coaching and obviously we skipped a really big part. Um, but where, where do we need to go from here? What I really like about this conversation is that many of these stories have never told let alone on the podcast I didn't I never told in a um in the corporate world like in my in the day job world um and it and it's interesting for me just reflecting on these stories as I'm telling them that when we would do you know we retired 10 years ago um as 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 dancers but in that time when because we were we were working full time in consulting or corporate roles and people we were working with at work thought that you know on the side on weekends we would dance it was like a hobby or you know quite an advanced hobby and then when we were in the dance world you know we were in a in a competition in bulgaria or russia or albania or america they thought that we had a you know day job on the side that earned a little bit of money to keep the dancing going but we were full-time dancers but for us, we were essentially running in parallel two full-time careers. So I think that 
and it's nice it's 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 so nice for me to be able to tell you some of these stories because I, we tell them to dancers we've got two dancers staying with us right now who are currently professional dancers uh, and, and we talk a lot about these other stories um it plays to where i why i'm passionate about working which is in around this idea of um people with extraordinary goals um and and we had a conversation before about about what does that mean what does extraordinary mean um and really for me you know i i think back to these dancers um many of whom didn't have um much in the way of financial means um often they came from countries you know with you know far lower you know sort of um you know ability to afford things than people who grown up for example in the UK or in, in in America like Mildred and I did and we saw people who were so passionate about what they did and so hard working and they achieved things that elevated themselves and elevated some, sometimes the people around them to great heights um and i've always been drawn in my in my work my day job work and now my coaching work as well to people who are trying to do something that other people think is impossible you know there's a couple that we trained with were world champions from denmark and when they finished training at 11:00 midnight in the studio um they would go and clean offices for another 2 or 3 hours to make money when they were world champions because in ballroom dancing there's no money and even when you're the the very best in the world um and in 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 the UK where we were we were, we've been training before people have much more on average an attitude of well you know i expect somebody else to give me something before i'm going to go above and beyond and we said well you know there's a couple that we knew and I I wrote about this story in my book the idea mindset um there were a couple from um Amsterdam and she was a student he was a welder that's what they did for day jobs and we met them at the competition in Prague um and we said oh you know which flight did you arrive on this is the flight we arrived on some kind of low cost flight and they said oh we couldn't afford the flight so we drove through the night from Amsterdam to Prague for the competition on Saturday um and we said oh okay um so you know you're staying somewhere overnight tonight and then driving back to Amsterdam tomorrow and they said you know it's about a 10 hour drive and they said no tomorrow or overnight tonight we're driving from Prague to Paris and we're doing the Paris professional championship and then overnight on Sunday night we're driving from Paris back to Amsterdam and we're back at work as a student and a welder on Monday morning and i thought wow okay we cannot worry about how tough we're finding it when these couples who have something they are deeply passionate about are going to that kind of end to make it happen so you know now i love working with people who've got that kind of mindset that are just going um it's not whether i can make it happen it's just how do i make it happen if this is the thing that i want to do how do i make it happen and i feel like if there's a role that people at cascan play you know coaches or or mentors or you know the kind of supporters can help them achieve extraordinary goals in extraordinary circumstances that's what i want to be doing so it's people who not just have extraordinary goals but also have there's something in that mindset to 
to just drive and make such significant sacrifice, like physically, it would be impossible for most people to do something like this. But when when a goal is fueled by true passion and vocation, there's just something different. It's like you can tap into resources within yourself that you didn't know you had. So what I'm hearing is almost like in your coaching, you're helping people with extraordinary goals to channel that energy from the the depths of themselves and achieve their goals. So I've started very recently um, doing more work around the unlock moment, um, doing some speaking events, talking about the idea of the unlock moment. Um, and reflecting on many of the stories that so many people you included have, have 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 talked with such sort of vividness about your experiences, um, and I'm also in my mind a little bit on paper starting to write a book that one day will come out one day called The Unlock Moment, and it's made me start to kind of draw the connections with what people are saying about the Unlock Moment, and and I was doing an event mid this week, and. I was being interviewed about the unlock moment. And as I'm doing these events, it's becoming more clear to me too, but it's still not clear to me quite what the unlock moment is. But the way I articulate it is there's a thing there that is really powerful. I know it's really powerful. I've always known it's really powerful. And when you ask people particular questions and they reflect on that, the unlock moment for them, it is a lens on your deepest sense of purpose that makes connections for you that helps you find clarity about about purpose, about um, legacy, about direction of travel. So uh, I interviewed. I was being interviewed by. Um, a brilliant uh, interview on uh, Wednesday this week. And as part of the interview, we effectively played the unlock moment with her. Um, and she is now a writer and she's running a writing business. And I said to her two questions. Question one, where do we need to start in your story to understand the person you become today? And two, what's a moment of remarkable clarity when you suddenly uh, discover you know, uh, the path ahead? And she said, and we, I didn't want to put her on the spot. So we'd had a little conversation 20 minutes before we'd gone on stage. And she said, the moment that comes to mind is when I was five years old and I cut my finger and I was upset and I cried and I felt ashamed for crying. And then she made a connection in that moment that she said, I've never made this connection before. But there's a connection for me about I write to not be ashamed. And that connects back to this very fleeting memory of being five years old. And I thought, and I didn't, I had no idea she was going to say that. And I, in that moment, I thought, that's, there's something there about the unlocked moment. It's not just you're hearing other people's stories. But in answering those questions, 
you're seeing something that was always there about you, but you're connecting into something very deep and very powerful that talks to purpose. Um, and I, I've been doing the podcast now for a year. I say it's only probably in the last few weeks that I'm really starting to, and I feel still I'm only starting to make sense of it in that kind of way. Um, and I've been talking about this idea that is a chapter of the book I haven't written of alone with others, which is there's a thing for a lot of these stories, the ones that are most powerful, where they talk about a time, people talk about a time when they're surrounded by people who love them and support them and guide them and shape them and, and, and all, of the, all of those things. And at the same time, and in a positive way, they are alone in the middle of that. By which I mean alone, it's just them. It's for them. Only they need to know. Only they are going to do anything with that. And the unlock moment is the knowing, not the doing. So sometimes people say my unlock moment was when I quit my job. And I say, tell me more about the time when you knew that that was what you wanted to do. Oh, that was a different time. And then they say, and you always know it's an unlock moment coming when they say, um, it was raining. I was wearing a blue coat. I was walking down the pavement. And it's that hugely vivid memory, often 10, 20, 30 years on. And that's the moment that they remember. You know, I remember sitting next to Mildred when she called Davide and had that initial conversation. We were like, you know, if he says, I'm not interested in you coming to my school, then at that moment we retire. And that's the end of my whatever 30 year career. Um, and he said, come. Um, and when we arrived in Italy, he said, um, by the way, I, there are lots of negative rumors about this school. There's lots of bad, you know, um, people say bad things about the school. And he said, I start those rumors. I tell, I make people think that the way we train couples is not very good. We don't do things properly. And he said, I do that for a specific reason. He said, I know that if you walk through these doors, when I've set these rumors to say that the school's not very good, then you really want to be here. And so he said, when you were from England, the most difficult country to come to this school, um, and you called me, I already knew that you were committed. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's so interesting. For me, the most, my most vivid memories are in my dance space rather than in the business space, actually. Yeah, thank you for um, sharing that. And, you know, it's interesting. I remember a, a supervision session that you joined, and I don't know if that was an unlock moment as such, but um, I remember you saying at the beginning of the session, you know, I'm, I'm fresh out of a job. <laughs> I just, um, um, I think you decided to, to leave your current role and change slightly what you were, you were doing within the organization. And you said, I want to dedicate myself fully to coaching. Um, and I feel that there was, there was a moment in that session where you went somewhere really deep and you just had a moment of clarity and you said something about uh, people with extraordinary goals. 
And I just really loved that moment of clarity and that I was able to witness it. Do you want to say anything about that? I remember that. And I think it's the most vulnerable probably I've been in, certainly in those coaching supervisions, if not in any situation, you know, those, those are coaching supervision is, is coaches coming together and, and talking about things, not necessarily to solve them in the moment, but to progress their thinking. And for me, it was about, I just felt like I'd known, I had, I'd always known that I had a curiosity and a fascination with people with extraordinary goals. I hadn't, and I still haven't quite figured out how I fit in that, you know, um, and we talked a bit about my own background. I had a particular conversation with, um, which was really the start of that conversation that, that you're talking about. Um, Dr. Ruth Gautian came on The Unlock Moment, who is a world-leading coach in the US, based in New York. And she has, for 20-plus years, run a program in the US called the MD-PhD program. It's for doctors who do a PhD in science. And in the US, it's something like half of all um, funding for um, clinical research goes to people who've been on this program. Um, but it's only 3% of all medical students. So it's incredibly, um, uh, it's an incredibly competitive program. Um, they, they attract the best of the best. Um, and then they have a thing called the leaky pipeline, which is it's so high stress that, um, lots of people drop out partway through or, or at the end of the program. Um, and we didn't know this before. We, we taught, she didn't know that that's the program I'd done in the UK. I'd been part of the MBPHD program here in the UK, which is much more nascent than in the US. So of, it's something like in the UK, I think 20,000 doctors a year, something like that are, are trained. Um, when I trained, so this was around um, the turn of the century, um, there were 12 places in the UK for MBPHD. There were 10 in Cambridge, there were two in London, that was it. If the, so I had to move medical schools from Bristol to Cambridge to get a place on the MBPHD program. And when I was on that program, um, your normal clinical training, so that's we were training on the wards for, you know, in the white coat with a stethoscope around your neck, that training. Um, normally you do that in three years. Your medical training is three years. And on the MBPHD program, you have to do all the same training and pass all the same exams, but you only have 18 months to do it in. And then and in the middle of that 18 months, you take a three-year break and you do a PhD that you have to do the science and write it up within three years, which is also incredibly high pace. You take no holidays for, the, for that whole time. Um, and I think when I was there, there had been, of all the students that had ever done the program in Cambridge, um, there was a suicide rate equal to 10% of the students because that's how high pressure it was. And I became part of the leaky pipeline. I came to the end of that program and for a whole variety of reasons, but, but I just realized that it wasn't for me. Um, but when I was talking to Ruth, the thing that, that was really striking for me, and I never thought about this this way before, is she said, so, so her research is into 
the habits of high performers. And she's written a brilliant book called The Success Factor, where she's interviewed Nobel Prize winners and Olympic athletes and astronauts and you know top business people about you know how they think, how they solve problems, how they make progress. And she said that she thought what she was going to find was that that top three percent of medical students, who she said, you know, the best of the best, that they will do the things that other people do. They will do them really, really well. And she said, what I discovered was that they do things fundamentally differently from other people. And well, she said, for example, that she said other people think about if they could solve the problem, how would they do it? But they accept that it might not be possible for them to solve it. And she said with these students, they just knew they were going to solve the problem. It was only a question of how and when they were going to do it. So there were some fundamental things that weren't about being further up the spectrum. It was a fundamentally different mindset. Um, and she published the book and won number one emerging management thinker of the year at Thinkers 50 for, for the research. So it was properly validated. And I came away from it going, so the thing that I feel in my head about exceptional, about high performance, which is a lot of the space I'd been in and my own personal journey and then with people that I'd been around, all these you know, amazing dancers and, and so on and so forth, and, and it has felt like there's something different here, but I can't put my finger on it, that it's not just more or better, but it's actually fundamentally different. And I still don't fully understand this. Um, it enabled, it helped me being in that conversation, this is only a few months ago, to be more comfortable with the idea that, that high performance is different, not just more. It's not just a bit further up the spectrum. There are, there are elements of the way you think, the way you do things that, that are fundamentally different. And that, that took me to going, well, of the people that I work with, and I've, I've had the privilege of working with some truly exceptional people, actually, in coaching over the last few years at different times. Um, some of them are in this group where they, they, they think, fundamentally differently they've achieved things that are quite extraordinary um and i felt as a coach that i tuned into it and i connected with it and i didn't necessarily know why i couldn't quite write down why and what i realized was i need to spend more time in that space because it is being authentic to who i am so the thing you said before about authenticity is really important um, I don't think I had allowed myself really to embrace the idea that it's okay to say that's where you should sit. And as a consequence of that thought, I've started to be a bit more open to the idea of of, of being more selective about the work I do, the way the 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 kind of thought leadership I'm trying to do, um, how I'm trying to build my own work. Um, and as a consequence of, of making some sort of changes to my approach, 
I started to work with people that I think I wouldn't have connected with before. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, I really feel at a point of transition, but some things are now starting to happen directly as a result of that conversation that you're describing in our supervision. Um, and that's something that I want people to hear, the idea that you don't have to have everything mapped out and know the answers. I, re- I feel like I have, it feels like this thing we're talking about right now, I feel like I have about 10% of the answer. That's how uncertain this feels for me. But there is within there the nugget of something that is that I know it's right. And I need to start to build on that 10% and just start to craft it and shape it and form it. And that's it, you know, and, and in that way, I think it I am gonna look back on this and think that it is a pivotal moment, an unlocked moment in my journey. Because because that was the moment of I knew I didn't know what I was going to do with it. His classic unlock moment. I knew that that was right. And now I had to just figure out, well, what does that mean? If that's right, what does it mean? And I'm still figuring that bit out. Well, it's, um, it's certainly been a pleasure to be part of your journey of figuring it out. And I'd, um, I'd love to speak to you again when... Um, when some of that starts to to take shape, uh, but I'm I'm really really excited for you, and it's um, um, it's been so interesting where our conversation took us. I didn't really anticipate it going here. Um, is there anything you'd like to let your listeners know in closing? I'm very grateful to you um, for being a being a thought partner really here, um, and you know, the thing that you're, well, one of the many things you're brilliant at is that creating the space. I, I agree with you. I, we talked about many things before having this conversation, little of which was actually what we talked about here, which, which also feels so perfect. Um, so thank you for your contribution um, and the time and, and the space. Um, and I think that people that would have worked with you um, and know you know that this is you. You know, and and why I think for me you were the the perfect partner to go on this kind of journey. The unlock moment is that flash of remarkable clarity when you suddenly know the right path ahead. And I hope that in our conversation today, you, our listener, have found something that sparked curiosity or clarity for you in giving yourself permission to explore your purpose and your motivations and fundamentally what makes you happy. Beatrice, thank you so much for coming on and being such a wonderful thinking companion and host. I couldn't think of anyone better to do this with. And to our listeners, join us again soon here on The Unlock Moment. This has been The Unlock Moment, a podcast with me, Dr. Gary Crotez. Thank you for listening in. You can find out more about how to figure out what you want and how to get it in my book, The Idea Mindset. Find me on Instagram at Dr. Gary Crotez and subscribe to this podcast to get notified about future episodes. Most listeners to this podcast on Apple and Spotify haven't yet hit the follow button. If there's one thing you can do right now to help me out, then please click the follow button. The more followers I have, the better guests I can attract for you to learn from. Thanks again for listening, and join me again soon here on The Unlock Moment.